Hi, so nice that you're listening. In today's episode, Mara van der Meulen will be talking about her twin study research. She talks about prosocial behavior and social exclusion in children and whether similarities can be found between twins. Mara also delves deeper into the role of a child's genetics and environment in the development of social behavior. Hi everyone, welcome. Hi Mara, welcome in our studio. Hi Sarah, how are you? Hello, I'm good. Thank you, Raymond. It's uh, really nice to be here and to uh, get to know Mara van der Meulen a little bit better. Uh, Raymond, are you looking forward to today's episode? Yes, absolutely. We're going to talk about a lot of interesting topics. And I've seen Mara in a few lectures lately, so I'm very curious about um, what she has to say. So, who is Mara? We will just uh, shortly introduce her. Mara van der Meulen is a postdoc researcher within the field of developmental psychology. And in the last six years, she has been part of a longitudinal twin study uh, where she looked into the social development of children. Mara, how are you today? Hi, thanks guys. Nice to uh, to be here. Thanks for having me here. Uh, I'm good. Actually, really uh, looking forward to telling you a bit more about the work that we've done uh, on the twin study. Very interesting. So maybe it's also good to um, tell the listeners what the general theme is of today. That will be pro-social behavior and social exclusion in children, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's the, the research I've been working on for the last seven years now um yeah seven years actually yeah could you tell us uh, a bit about your research what have you been uh, investigating sure thing maybe i can uh quickly start with telling you something about the background of the study to give you a frame of what we're looking at yes um so the work i've been doing is uh, part of a large longitudinal twin study so we followed two groups of twins for six years Uh, in each group of twins we had about 400 to 500 children and their parents. So the whole family actually participated. Um, And together these um, uh, groups of twins are part of the Leiden Consortium on Individual Development. I just want to say the official name Mm -hmm. once and then I'm going to refer to it as LSIT. So not to confuse it with the introduction (laughs) for students, which is also LSIT. Mm -hmm. Um, So the LSIT twin study is the the actual study that we're uh, uh, working on. Um, And I did my PhD there for five years. And as a PhD student, I collected data in children aged seven to eight. And then we followed them up uh, one year later and then so on and so on until we followed them up for six years. And during these six years, we looked into how these children develop their social competence and behavioral control. And my main interest in this research is on social competence. So not really the behavioral uh, behavioral regulation part, but more on how do children grow into being a socially competent human? How can mm-hmm. they make friendships, for example? How do, can they relate to their peers? And two specific topics that I'm looking at are pro-social behavior and social exclusion. And those two topics might seem a bit contradictory at first. Mm-hmm. Um, because do you want to just briefly explain explain for the listeners uh, what exactly is pro-social behavior and and what is social exclusion? Yeah, sure. So pro-social behavior is behavior that you show towards another person to help them, to be nice to them. It's essentially being kind to someone else without really expecting anything in return. So for example, young children might show that by giving their favorite teddy bear to another child who is crying. Um, so they know that the teddy bear comforts themselves. So when they give it to another child, they hope the other mm-hmm. child will also feel comforted by that. Um, But you can also think about donating money, for example, or sharing 
goods or anything else that you have. Whereas social exclusion is actually a bit more a negative aspect of social interaction is uh, when you're not being a part of the group. And like I said, it's a bit contradictory to study both of them at the same time because pro-social behavior is a very positive behavior that we would like to see all around us, whereas social exclusion um, is also very closely associated with bullying um, uh, or victimization, which is another term for that. Um, so being left out in general. And the, the main thing why it's so important to look into these two topics is that we as humans are very social being. We really want to be part of the group as actually part of our evolutionary background um, to be together you cannot survive mm -hmm. on your own even nowadays you have people who decide to live on their own but they still rely on others because they need food housing clothing exactly. yeah. everything else so you really need other people around you to survive um, and several studies have actually shown that you also feel happier when you have people around you who love you who like mm -hmm. you who can join you in fun activities who yeah just want to share the ups and downs of life with you and if you're being socially rejected, that means you don't really have access to those people that can share those things with you. That makes you feel lonely uh, and can eventually turn into depression and anxiety. Whereas mm -hmm. when you're being pro-social, you're actually showing towards other people, hey, I want to help you out. Maybe they want to help you out in return. There might be something of reciprocity hidden uh, uh, in that behavior as well. But it's thought that pro-social behavior helps you to strengthen those social ties. So that's yeah. one way to, yeah, increase that social network that you really rely on. And so you mentioned that the, the two, so pro-social behavior and social exclusion, are rather opposites of each other. Um, but then how do you go uh, about measuring these two things? And um, do you use one to measure the other that you can perhaps see that um, when somebody is being excluded and somebody else then steps in, that then, that also shows their extent of uh, pro-socialness? Um, I don't know how, how it looked in, in this twin study, the, the measurement. Yeah, it's a very uh, nice summary, actually, of what we did. So we used a uh, task called the uh, pro-social cyberball game, and that's a virtual ball playing game. So what it looks like, it's very simple on the screen. You just see black and white puppets uh, throwing the ball around, and we tell the participants, okay, you are one of these four players on the screen, um, and you're going to toss the ball to the other players. You can press a button to indicate if you want to toss it to player one, to player two, or player three. And that's all the instruction that children receive they first play a situation where everyone tosses the ball to everyone so we can see okay if there's nothing special going on do these kids prefer one of the players um, and then in the second block we slightly change the setup so they still have to toss the ball around but now player one and player three don't toss the ball to player two anymore they still toss the ball to the participant though so we can look at the participant and see okay do you notice that one of the other players is being left out um, and then if you notice that what do you do when you see mm -hmm. that someone else is being excluded so here we look at um, the participant looking at someone else being excluded and then seeing if they show pro-social behavior after observing exclusion um, of someone else. But what we notice is that the kids, after the end of the task, they also mentioned that they felt excluded themselves at some point, even though this wasn't originally the setup of the study. They said there were some short periods in the task where I did not receive the ball um, and that made me feel left out or maybe I was 
kind of getting anxious of, hey, this other person is being left out. Maybe I'm next to be mm-hmm. uh, left out of your game. So that's why we were able to also look at how do children react when they experience this short interval of social exclusion themselves. So within this same game, we could look at how people react on someone else's exclusion, maybe by showing pro-social behavior. And we could look at what do they do when they feel excluded themselves. Mm-hmm. So you looked at third-party exclusion to measure then the, the individual in question to measure their pro-social behavior. Yeah. But then that individual in question actually also felt social exclusion. Um, so it, was there like some sort of sensitivity that they that they could sense, you know, maybe I'm next um, or something maybe that happened in the brain that they, I don't know, something lit up that they thought, oh no, I don't want to be rejected now. Yeah, we um, uh, we only noticed that kids said so themselves. So we don't have any official questionnaire of how did you feel after being left out. We didn't want to uh, point them too much towards the uh, goal of the task because we uh, the plan was to use it three more times. So if they know what's going on, then <laughs> it's kind of unusable. So uh, that's why we didn't say anything. But we collected this data during an MRI scan that also allowed us to look at what happens in the brain when you're playing this particular task. So we could look at what happens when you see that someone is being excluded and what happens when this period of exclusion happens happens for yourself. Uh, and what we notice is that there's a very different uh, area of the brain that's being activated for seeing someone being excluded and then showing pro-social behavior and other regions of the brain that become activated when you uh, feel excluded yourself. Uh, And also when you feel included, so when you do receive the ball uh, from someone else. So for being included, we perceive that as something positive because we want to belong to the group. And we saw activation in brain regions such as the bilateral insula and um, dorsal anterior cingulate cortex. Sounds very technical. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I'm only going to say it once. Uh, um, But these uh, regions are mainly activated when you experience something that is meaningful to you, when you observe something that's important. Uh, So that's not necessarily positive or negative, but more of, hey, something is going on here. But we also saw activation of the striatum when kids felt included in the game and maybe uh, the term trade is a bit more familiar mm-hmm. because that's seen as the reward center of the brain so whenever that center is activated we also um, see activation there when you get a large bag of money or when you're um, using drugs but kids <laughs> don't really do that yet so <laughs> and um, you're yeah. using twins for this study right so you're, yeah. you're using identical twins to see what the influence of heritability is on pro-social behavior, correct? Yeah, we actually use uh, both identical and non-identical twins. Uh, They were both invited to participate because uh, we compare how much identical twins look alike and how much non-identical twins look alike. Well, not just look alike, but actually behave the same same way or show the same response in the brain. Uh, And we use a statistical model that assumes that if these monozygotic twins or the identical twins, if they are more alike than the non-identical twins, then it's probably due to their genetic makeup because Mm -hmm. identical twins share more of their genes than non-identical twins. Whereas when identical twins and non-identical twins show the same behavior, at least to the same extent, then it's probably not due to genetics alone, but also to the shared environments that they... So that's probably the situation that they grow up in, their family, so maybe parents, maybe school. 
I mean, could it also be a combination of both when you're looking into, you know, epigenetics so that a certain gene is then maybe triggered by the environment that you've grown up in? So they might have perceived their the same environment still differently. Do, have you seen anything uh, leading to think that there's differences in twins that are monozygotic? Um, we didn't really uh, look into an epigenetic approach yet. Um, so now we mainly focus on uh, trying to determine whether differences in behavior can be um, attributed to genes or to um, the environment. But what we saw in basically all the studies we did so far in this uh, larger consortium is that all the behavior that we're interested in is always uh, um, driven by a combination of genetic factors and shared or unique environmental factors. And we make a distinction between the shared and the unique part because twins growing up in the same family, they share the same parents. But like you uh, said very nicely, is that due to your own personal background or your temperament or personality or whatever, you can experience the same parents in a very different way. The perception have, is different for yes, everybody. Yeah. yeah, exactly. If you have one very introvert and one very extrovert child, they will still have a very different memory of uh, big family holidays, for example. Mm -hmm. Some will really like it, whereas the others won't exactly. really like it. Um, so that's why it's also important to look into, okay, what is specific for this individual child and what do they share with their twin brother or sister? And then there's this third component of uh, genetics. But here we only make a very broad um, distinction in, okay, we think most of the differences can be attributed to genes or environment, and we need follow-up analyses or maybe even looking into which specific genes uh, appear to really explain what type of behavior. Uh, and if, if the outcomes will be that it will be a mostly genetic influence or mostly an environmental influence, uh, how would that then uh, relate to the practicality of your research outcomes? What would that mean for uh, society? I think one of the parts that I uh, didn't mention so far about the twin study is that we also have an intervention set up uh, hidden in there. So part of our families received a parenting intervention focusing on positive aspects of parenting. So for example, we said, hey, did you see that you made your kids smile or did you, did you tell them, told them something that made them feel very proud? Uh, and we think that if um, differences in behavior can be explained by differences in the environment. Uh, so then if you would change something in the environment, it might be possible to also change something in that behavior. Uh, could you tell us uh, a bit about the effects of identical genetic makeup and that influencing, I guess, um, parenting decisions or how, how you adjust behavior? Yeah, so we think that when uh, we find that behavior is more strongly influenced by the environment, then it might be possible to change something in that environment to also change something in that behavior. For example, when you uh, might find that pro-social behavior is very strongly driven by uh, the environment, we might think about, hey, can we offer kids who are not so pro-social, can we offer them a training to see if we can in that way increase their pro-social behavior? Um, is that also a goal of this research project or is it right now more focusing on finding out whether it is actually um, environmentally determined? Yeah, for now we're just looking into what is going on. So we're not really looking into uh, um, uh, what type of intervention should we set up. It's more fundamental in that way that we first want to chart, okay, what is the effect of genes and environment on certain behaviors? And then as the next step, we might 
think along with, I don't know, policymakers or maybe uh, training uh, or sorry, people who uh, design trainings to say, okay, we think these are the best behaviors to target in an intervention. Now let's think about how we can implement these findings uh, to actually change behavior. But um, it's very hard to say that some behaviors are completely genetically exactly. driven or yeah. completely environmentally driven because mm -hmm. it's always an interplay. Uh, especially yeah. when you're looking at social behavior that depends on so many factors, not in the least how you're feeling in the moment. If you're happy uh, and um, if you're not hungry, for example. <laughs> and your mood, of course, also influences the way you perceive things. Yes, yes. The absolutely. motivation in the moment too. So. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's always a struggle, I think, in every type of psychological research that you are dealing with actually human beings who bring their own moods and ideas in the experiment. And sometimes they're better motivated or it's easier for them to keep their thoughts on the task that they're doing. Um, that's one of the advantages of measuring people in different time points. So, for example, in the six time points we have here, if from the six time points there was one day where they weren't feeling so well, then you would observe that they behave slightly different compared to the other moments, but you would still have a better overview of how that person behaves over time instead of just focusing on one time point and saying, well, this is it. This is basically what we're dealing with. We don't really know what's going on uh, so if on I can, another day. If I can just reel it back in to kind of uh, cover the main points in a nutshell, uh, would you then say that um, looking at this study, it's kind of sort of divided into two sections where on the one hand you're looking at this interplay uh, with, you know, twins and whether there are similarities or differences, also looking at genetics and the environment. But on the other hand, you're focusing on the two main social developmental uh, aspects, which are social behavior and social exclusion. But then those two are more on the independent level, right? Because you look per, per individual child, you see how sensitive they are to exclusion and how willing they are to be pro-social or is that also looked at like compared within uh, each twin group yeah we actually um uh, i want to say use the twins <laughs> we invited twins to participate uh in our study because that allows us to tell something about the uh, influence of genes and environment but we also look at these kids as individuals so we use their um, uh, their characteristic, as it were, as being a twin, because that can tell us something about genes and environment. But when we look on a behavioral level to see how children develop over time, then we're looking at individual children mm -hmm. uh, and not really at the twin what would aspect. You, what would you say is the main aim or the, the biggest goal you want to achieve with this uh, study? And what do you hope to actually find with this study? I think the underlying thought behind the study is that we want to find out why some children are better able to develop their social skills compared to other children. So we're mainly looking at the individual level uh, to answer that question. But using the twin design of the study helps us to understand, okay, are these differences in social skills? Should we look into the more genetic aspect? Is there something is it set in your genes? And if that's the case, is it true that we cannot really change anything? Then maybe we should think about other ways where we can help these kids uh, develop their social skills. Whereas if we know that social skills are largely influenced by the environment, that might help us think about, okay, if it's an environmental issue, then maybe we can still change something. So it can also there. help with the intervention as well in retrospect. Yeah. 
Yeah, so I think the um, the setup of the twin design is more in understanding what's going on. It's one way of looking at how do differences in social behavior uh, develop in children. And for example, looking at the brain, so neuro neuroimaging studies, uh, that's another way of looking at differences. For example, why is this person more pro-social than the other person that might be explained partly because they show different so is this, neural responses. So is this why you decided or why this uh, research decided to um, do a twin study actually and not look only um, to on an individual level? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so that's one way to, or actually we use multiple ways to grasp this background of, okay, what's going on when we're looking at social behavior? We can, of course, ask the parents. We did ask the parents, but they are biased uh, in that aspect. They will probably say that their kids are the best, <laughs> which is fair. I mean, they should say their kids are the best, uh, but it's very hard to get a very reliable um, estimate. Uh, for example, one parent might tell a slightly different story than the other parent. These kids were too young to ask them themselves. So that's why we decided to use different measurement methods to look at social behavior, to really get a full picture of what are all the different influences uh, that might explain why some kids are more socially competent than other kids. Very interesting. Yeah, before um, we go to the question of one of our listeners, I have one question myself. You already found that a remarkable finding was that children perceive this cyberball game uh, sometimes as uh, being excluded themselves as well, even though that was not part of um, the way that the experiment was set up. Were there any other remarkable findings so far? Um, I think one of the most reassuring findings for me was that when kids uh, uh, see that someone is being excluded, that they actually show pro-social behavior. It's often thought that kids are only thinking about themselves, maybe because they're not empathic enough. So empathy is the ability to kind of feel what someone else is feeling. When you see that someone is really, really sad, then you might also feel a bit sad yourself. Um, and we sometimes think that kids don't really have that ability or that they don't show it because they're so busy with what's going on with themselves. Uh, but this study actually shows that even at the age of seven and eight, kids can um, already see, hey, there's something going on with another person and I can do something to help them. And then that they actually do something to help them because exactly. seeing that something is going on and then also helping them are two separate processes, I think. I think that uh, ties in nicely to uh, the question we got from one of our listeners. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah, every time we, uh, we try to ask uh, our audience, uh, via our Instagram. So if you've got a question for one of our next episodes, be sure to check it out. Um, the question we got uh, was, do victims of social exclusion help other victims more than non-victims would? So is there a correlation between the uh, perceived exclusion and the degree to which children intervene in exclusion? That's actually a very interesting question and something that I uh, was wondering about myself. So we have some information on whether these children... Uh, show bullying behavior themselves, so whether they are the bullies, but also on whether they are victims in, uh, or the, whether they feel victims in daily life. And we didn't really find an association. So it wasn't the case that kids who experienced more victimization also showed a stronger neural response when uh, they experienced this short period of social exclusion. And we also didn't find a difference in kids who were more or less pro-social um, so the kids who were more pro-social didn't show a different neural response when feeling excluded themselves. So, so far, we don't really know what mm -hmm. uh, the link is between how children experience their daily lives and how they react to feeling excluded or to 
uh, uh, reacting when they see someone else being excluded. Yeah. Um, Do you think that that might be that um, children at this age are already really pro-social uh, in general, so that they uh, wouldn't stand out even by being bullied themselves? Um, I think they are a bit more pro-social than I expected myself. But um, when we look at the whole range of participants, so uh, of the 500 participants that were uh, included in this study, we see that some people are super, super pro-social. So they always throw the ball to the person who's being excluded. Mm -hmm. But there's also people who are uh, not pro-social at all. So they never toss the ball to the excluded mm -hmm. player. So even though in general, these kids show pro-social behavior, there's large different individual differences in uh, how these kids yeah act on an individual by individual basis um and uh, i would have loved to ask them more about hey what are your experiences maybe do you help other people in daily life uh, but these kids were only seven and eight at the time mm -hmm. and it makes them a bit hard to give them a lot of questionnaires because kids in this age group find it really hard to reflect on themselves. They can tell I'm getting better at reading, I can, I'm can. i getting better at math, but when you ask them, okay, do you think you are more or less nice to other kids um, than the kid who is sitting next to you? That's very hard for them to think about. We also ask their parents how pro-social they think their children were, but most parents said their kids were um, uh, generally uh, high in pro-social <laughs> behavior. So um, the average response was above average. Yes, yeah, it was <laughs> above average. Um, and there also wasn't really a link. So kids who were super pro-social in our task were not necessarily the ones who were indicated as super pro-social mm -hmm. by their parents. So it could be because this was just one task, just one situation where we observed the behavior, whereas parents see kids across this whole range of behavior, maybe towards mm -hmm. their siblings or nephews or to the parents, to the teachers. So it might be that their vision or their perception of how pro-social these kids are is a bit different than what we measured in our task. So we still need to combine these mm -hmm. findings to get a kind of complete picture. Okay, that's very interesting. And I was wondering then, because uh, you were saying, you know, some are very high on this pro-social scale and the others lack it uh, to some degree. Um, so it, you wouldn't be able to conclude, I guess, uh, that pro-social behavior is intrinsic, that you're sort of born with with the, the wants to be kind to others and to help others, or can we still have this hope that that is the case and, and that everyone has that, that bit of uh, wanting to give to other people without expecting something in return? Uh, that's also a very interesting question. The first thing that comes to mind is that um, other studies that looked at um, how we can explain pro-social behavior show that there's a contribution of both genes and environment. So it's partly maybe innate in us, but like I said, as human beings, we should be considered a social species. So based on that, we could say we need to be pro-social because you need to tie people to you because you'll need to rely on them later on. So it has also an evolutionary perspective, actually, and yeah. that it's in the long run perhaps beneficial to be a pro-social person uh, because maybe in the long run you do get things in return, but then would that still make it pro-social if you have the goal in mind to later also get the favor returned? Yeah, um, so the saying, I scratch your back, you'll mm -hmm. scratch mine, uh, I think it's actually uh, applies very well to pro-social behavior because I might be nice to you now at first because I just want to, but there might be some underlying thought of maybe if I'm nice to you now, 
you'll be nice to meet <laughs> next time. But I also think that for the recipient of the pro-social behavior, it may not really matter. So if you're donating money um, because you want to show how wealthy you are, or if you're donating money just because you want to be kind, it doesn't matter for the person who gets the money because they get the money anyway, and yeah. they'll be happy with it. So even though the underlying motives of pro-social behavior might not be completely altruistic, so altruistic would be that you really do it for someone else without, you know, don't not expecting anything in return, um, I still think it can be considered pro-social behavior because it will still be perceived by the other person as an act yeah. of kindness. For a social interaction, it's still beneficial. Yeah, yes, exactly. All right. Um... Considering uh, all your research, I think we have some uh, take-home messages for our audience, Sarah. Yes, um, so I would like to wrap it up a little bit. And I think it's extremely interesting what is being looked into with this uh, study. And I'm very curious to see uh, in the end what the outcome will be. Um, but maybe, uh, as Raymond said, you have some uh, take-home messages for the people listening. Uh, the biggest points to um, reflect on and uh, things that also uh, stood out the most so far. Yeah, I think for the um, social exclusion part, what we what really stood out to me was that um, the neural responses we saw in the brain they were already very clear when we look at very short periods of social exclusion. So that's only seeing the ball going one, two, maybe three times to other players. That was already enough to elicit this neural response, at least of what we uh, coined as social exclusion. So that tells me something about how deeply ingrained that feeling of, I want to be with that group, I want to belong with that group, how strong that is, um, and uh, probably also how strongly embedded that is in our brain. So that's very nice uh, in terms of kind of how the human brain works that we're so targeted or so cued towards It doesn't being take much to trigger beings. that. Yeah, exactly, and that it's so important to us. Um, and already at this young age, yeah. I think seven and eight can still be considered a quite young age. I think the second main point that I wanted to make is that um, it's very nice for me to see that kids actually become pro-social when they see that someone else is being left out. So that also shows that you are sensitive to another person's need to be included and that you want to do something for them when they're not being uh, included by others uh, in the group. And that kind of gives me hope for... Mm -hmm maybe humanity as a whole saying okay we we do try to help other people even though you might not always experience that in a day-to-day -day basis if even this very simple experiment can it shows uh, show pro-social behavior kind. and that is i think a really nice uh way to end the episode today um that people have good inside them. Um, but thank you so much, uh, Mara, for this really interesting conversation about uh, social exclusion and pro-social behavior in children. Yeah, uh, thanks a lot for coming here. If our uh, listeners want to find more about your research or learn more about what you're currently uh, doing, where can you go? Um, you can uh, look me up on Twitter. So it's, uh, uh, I think my Twitter handle is Mara VD Meulen. Um, you can always find my email address at the website of Leiden University. Uh, that's always an easy way to find me. Um, and for the twin study, I'd like to refer you to salmonunique.com with a dash between salmon and uh, unique, because that's the name we gave the study towards our parents uh, and participants. Um, yeah, to find a bit more about what we did in the study. Great. Well, thank you a lot for coming. Yeah, thanks.
so Thank much you. for having me. We hope you enjoyed our episode. Please leave a review because the more reviews we have, the easier it becomes for listeners to find us. If you have any further questions, you can contact us on social media at Leiden Psychology. Want to know more about Mara's research? You can use samunique.com or check out her work on the Leiden Psychology website. See you in the next episode.